Hello again, Church at Five, uh, and welcome to our second week in our series, Humans of the Bible. Last week we started with Adam, and as we kind of discussed, it's uh, the obvious choice for beginning a series on humans of the Bible, the first human that God had created. And today we're going to be taking a bit of a leap forward in the text or in the Bible, although throughout this series uh, there's not really a whole lot of system as far as how we're going literally. Uh, we're kind of jumping around and looking at different characters, but we're taking a, a pretty big leap forward and looking at Job. Now, the story of Job is found in the book of Job, if you didn't know. And if you are familiar with the book of Job, you may find it really fascinating. It may be a book that you've been always interested by. Uh, you could find it incredibly frustrating, as many do when reading the book of Job. Uh, or you may find it really near impossible to understand. It's a very complicated book. It's written in Hebrew poetry, and it's a, a type of wisdom literature. And it can be a bit grueling to understand some of the terms that are used. And uh, So some of you may love the book of Job, and some of you may absolutely hate it. Uh, so with that in mind, before we go any further, as I kind of mentioned last week, uh, through this series, we're looking at humans of the Bible. So I want to be absolutely clear that we're not going to be going into an in-depth study of the book of Job in a 30 to 40, 50, 60 minute sermon, depending on how it goes today. Um, and actually, just to kind of give you an idea of the book of Job as in, its, in its entirety, uh, in my study for this message, I came across a pastor, and this is a bit extreme, I'll admit, uh, but his name was Joseph uh, Carroll, Joseph Carroll, uh, and he preached through the book of Job in 23 years uh, with 424 sermons. And actually, in his last sermon, at the end of this uh, long period through the book of Job, uh, he said, I have not obtained a clear understanding of some of the passages. So it's, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack, and we're not going to be doing that. It's my hope that God willing, someday I can go through the book of Job when I feel ready for that. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the human Job. And what is our goal when looking at the human of the Bible, Job? Well, Job's story is one of tragedy. It's one of loss and of suffering. The tale of falling deep into despair, something that often accompanies those who are in suffering. And in the story of Job, we find this question that's being wrestled with throughout the book, which is why it's such a complicated and in-depth book, of why. Why is this happening? Why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? And then we see these kind of attempts to explain that, some of them very wrong. Now, I can't promise you that today you're going to be satisfied with the answer to that question. So if you're just going in from that, uh, with that perspective, you may not be satisfied with the answer to that question. It's been debated for centuries, and still there's not a lot of uh, agreement on that, the answer to that question. Why are, is there suffering? Why do sometimes even good people suffer? But as we unpack Job's life a little bit, and we're going to kind of peek into his life, peek into the situation that he finds himself in. But all the while, we're going to be kind of taking a bit of a bird's eye view. We're kind of flying over this book in its entirety, all 42 chapters in this kind of one message. Uh, but in that, I do hope uh, that we will all kind of have a better grasp of suffering 
thinking about it, looking at it through Job's perspective, through this human of the Bible, uh, and so that hopefully maybe we understand our own suffering better and as well as the suffering of others, especially in our connection with God in our suffering. So what was Job's suffering? That's what we're going to start with. Johanna read us the text to kind of introduce us to Job. This is how the book of Job begins. This is the first kind of glimpse we have of this man. And he seems to be a man that really has a lot going for him. He's uh, the, right at the very beginning, he calls him uh, a great man, one of the, the greatest men of the time of that era, of that region that he's in. He was a wealthy man. He had 10 children. Uh, he's got this infrastructure. He had lots of servants and, and kind of employees, if you will. And he was also a righteous, upright man who feared God and shunned evil. So he seems like just this upright, awesome guy that you just love to hang out with. He's a good guy. Then in Job 1, 13 through 20, from Job's perspective, everything changes in an instant. I picture it. Job is sitting on his front porch, maybe taking in the beautiful scenery that's laid before him. Perhaps he's sipping on a delicious coffee. That's what I would be doing in that moment. Just enjoying a wonderful day, maybe wrapping it up, watching a sunset. We don't know exactly what he was doing. But then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, without any warning or foreknowledge, a servant runs up. Or you could say, the phone rang. It rings the first time and someone on the other line says, listen, all your wealth all your livestock, everything you've been building up your entire life is gone. All your livestock have been killed. Your retirement plan is gone. Your savings account has been emptied. You have nothing left. Everything you worked for is gone now, in a moment. His heart begins to beat fast. Maybe he feels a bit of a rush of panic. How do you even process news like that? But before he can process it, before he can put the phone down, the phone rings again. Another servant runs up. All your employees, all your servants have been killed. Only I escaped to be able to tell you. The people you've known for years, the servants he would have maybe known since they were children, known their, the children of those servants, their families, they've all been taken away. He feels devastated. But then the phone rings again. All your camels, all your camels, all your livestock, the rest of your livestock, everything else you had has been stolen. All your cars are gone. You have nothing left. At this point, Job is absolutely has no possessions to his name. He's got the clothes on his back. Complete devastation is overtaking him. Could it get any worse? What else could be taken from him? He feels the rush of the loss, the panic of what to do now. What does this mean for my life? Where do I go from here? And then a fourth call. He probably didn't want to answer. He probably didn't want to know what that servant had to say. When the fourth messenger came in, I don't believe Job had any thought to what they might have to say. 
still being overtaken by everything else he had heard, all of the things that he just became aware have been taken from him. What else could be taken? The messenger begins, your sons and daughters were feasting. Job's eyes begin to water, a look of disbelief on his face. No, not my kids. All your children have died at once in a house that's collapsed on them. Would not any one of us in a moment like that immediately want to scream at the top of our lungs, why? Why is this happening? What's going on? What's the meaning of this? And Job has no idea. He has no idea. Those of you familiar with the book of Job know that there was a dialogue between Satan and God, and Satan has gone and and kind of asked for permission to test Job in order to show that he can make Job curse God and reject God and deny God's truth and deny God altogether if he just has the ability to take things away from him. But Job doesn't know this. He doesn't know what's going on. From Job's human perspective, he just saw his entire life crumble before his eyes in a matter of moments. He went from having all to nothing with seemingly no rhyme or reason behind it. How might you or I have responded in Job's situation? What might we have done? The sudden nature of this really reminds me of this kind of corona crisis we're in right now. It it felt like just a matter of days, right? We went from, uh, you know, everything is kind of, you're hearing rumors of things, and then suddenly uh, we can't meet anymore, and suddenly we're all in quarantine. It just always like, bam, bam. And for most of us, I have to be honest, if we're all honest, for a lot of us, it was just minor inconveniences in our life. But there are some right now that this changed their life. It changed the trajectory of their life. People who have lost jobs, people who have lost loved ones, people who have died. We can kind of maybe relate to this just sudden nature that Job is just, everything's fine, he's sipping on his coffee, and suddenly he has nothing. He's just experienced the loss of everything that he's had to work for in his whole life, as well as his own children, ten children taken. Job's loss was great. And most of us have not experienced loss like this. And I wouldn't hope this on an enemy. I wouldn't hope this on anyone. What a devastating thing to experience. And especially as one who has two children, I can't imagine losing my children and how devastating and how destroyed I would be. Let's follow Job now through several stages that he goes through in his grief and suffering and how he endures through it. This is the first stage, Job's initial reaction to losing everything. I think of what I would do, and I feel like I am not the righteous man that Job is, at least here at the start of the story. Job 1, 20 through 22, it says, At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. These were acts of mourning. He is in mourning. This is the natural reaction to this loss. But then it says, Then... He fell to the ground in worship. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Verse 22, In all this, 
In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He wasn't charging, it's not wrong to say that God takes away. God gives us things, God sometimes takes them from us. And Job has had his entire life flipped upside down, and yet he's quick. His first initial reaction is to worship and acknowledge God's sovereignty. How powerful is that? Everything he had was from God to begin with, and he knew that. It was God who had blessed me, and if God has chosen to take these things from me, God can do no wrong in that. God is as deserving of our praise, our love and adoration when we have gifts from him or when we have those things taken from us. God remains the same. He's the same God in all of the situations we find ourselves in. Job seems to be aware of that in his initial reaction to these events. And if this was where Job's suffering ended, no one would ever be able to say his suffering was light or easy. But things go from bad to worse from here. In Job 2, 7 through 8, Job's health is taken from him. He is afflicted with painful sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And then we see this image of Job sitting in the, on the ground, sitting in a pile of ashes, trying to relieve his pain by scratching and scraping these sores that are all over his body with pieces of broken pottery. Whatever this illness was, we know that it was clear to him and to those around him that it would claim his life. It was certainly a life-threatening disease. It was painful. It was unsightly. It would have been difficult to even look at him in the face at this kind of disgust that would have been covering his entire body. And it was a deadly disease. So all his wealth, his possessions are gone. His 10 children have all died. And now his health has been taken away. His wife kind of chimes in here with, her input to the situation, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. I do want to just point out, she gets a lot of flack for that when people preach through Job, but we do need to be a bit gracious that she too has lost all of her children. And maybe she wants to just not see her, son, her, her husband suffer until he dies, but end it quickly. But at this point... Also, God has not said anything. Job's still unaware. He doesn't know what's going on. It's just it, just everything is being destroyed around him. He has no idea what's going on, no idea why. He must be feeling alone now. Now, even his own wife probably can't stand to look at him. Seeing him in pain and in the shape he's in is just has given up hope as well. Yet still, he does maintain his integrity. He does maintain his integrity at this point, and his faith that God is good, God is sovereign, and knows what he's doing. In verse, in chapter two, verse ten, he says, "Shall in response to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble?" He believes and knows that God is in control, and He is a good God. As it says in the New Testament, that He's working things out for good. There's, there's some purpose in this, and I don't understand it but I'm not going to reject God. I'm not going to curse God. He remains, remains faithful and keeps his integrity at this point. And here 
would be a nice conclusion if we were to wrap this up in a nice little bow with a lesson, right? Even when life is hard, even when you have the worst of suffering, which most of us would never hopefully experience suffering like Job did, even in those moments we still worship God, trusting in His sovereignty, the end. But that is not how the story of Job ends. And that's not how the lesson can end. Because suffering rarely fits into that box. Anyone who's really suffered. And we've all suffered to some extent. But in those moments of of deep suffering, we know it doesn't fit in that box. It doesn't have this nice conclusion. You know, when you're feeling, when you're in the the midst of suffering, you don't want to hear, hey, just be faithful, brother. It's going to be all right. Like, you're like, you don't know what you're talking about, man. You're not experiencing suffering like I am. Suffering, pain, loss, they affect us to the very core of our being. They can rock our world. They change us. And they can also reveal things about ourselves we didn't even know. And Job begins sinking into a very dark place within himself. A depression, a misery where darkness seems to be his only friend as he paints. Job's tone has changed. He was quick to worship God and to praise him and to lift up his holy name, right? The favorite uh, translation, blessed be the name of the Lord, right, is what Job says. But as his suffering has continued, he is beginning to sink. And Job chapter 3 we see kind of a second stage of Job's response to his circumstances. A natural one, for sure, but a dark one. And I would say Job chapter 3 may be one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Job, uh, and only in the, only darker would maybe be, of course, Christ's death. Job 3, 3 through 4, and you can read through the whole chapter, but I'll just read this, which paints the picture for us. May the day of my birth perish. And the night that's, that was said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. The chapter goes on in detail of Job's lament over the day of his birth. Oh, that he would just be better if I had never been born and gets into some passionate detail about how dark that day needs to be and should be forgotten forever. It's unclear how much time may have passed since everything began. We don't know. Was it weeks? Has it been months that he's been in this misery? I don't think much time would have been needed to get to this place. Maybe some of us would have been there immediately. Suffering can lead us into very dark places. This is often a part of the process. Suffering rarely is something that happens just for a moment and then the sun comes out the next day and we brush it off and everything's fine again. And Job will never be the same because he'll never be able to completely overcome the loss of his children. In the end, he's blessed with more children, but I guarantee you he didn't forget the children he lost. In suffering there is often a bottom that we reach where it feels as though all light has faded and we're without hope. This is where Job is in chapter 3. And it is a reflection of Christ, of Jesus' own words in the garden. When he says, my father, 
if it is possible, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. If it's possible. He knew, he was dreading, he was in a very dark place. It says his tears were, that he was uh, had tears of blood and the agony that he knew he was about to experience. Yet, of course, Christ remains faithful and says, not my will, but yours be done. But there's dark places that we can go in moments of suffering. and So I don't believe that Job has sinned here. Some might say he has uh, in cursing the day that he was born. Um, it certainly it seems to be a rejection of God's good gift of life, but I don't believe that he has sinned. He's merely expressing the weight of his misery and pain. It's a lament. And when we're in these low and dark places of suffering, there is a freedom that God really allows for us to express the true weight of what we're experiencing. And that's what I think we are seeing here. And we see a lot of examples of that from David and other writers in the Psalms as well. And in other places throughout the Bible. So through his lament... Job hasn't been alone. He's not been talking to himself. Uh, He's certainly talking, I think, out there into the world and kind of, I think, talking to God. He's beginning to address God. Uh, But he's also, he hasn't been sitting alone. He has had three friends who have been sitting with him uh, the whole time back from the end of chapter 2. And uh, at first they sit for seven days in silence. They just kind of mourn with him. And that's kind of why you get this sense that they felt like, okay, he, he's maybe got a few days. Let's just sit with him and, and kind of be there till the end. Uh, but he doesn't die. He, is, he just continues to live, which we know if you're reading through all of the text that uh, God commands Satan that he cannot take, he cannot kill Job. And so he's in this suffering. He's in this place of near death, but not dying. And so his friends are sitting there with him. They've sat with him in silence. They've now sat uh, and listened patiently through Job's lament here, uh, but then in chapter 4, and actually all the way through to 31, these three friends begin to attempt to explain the why. The why. And this makes up the majority of the book. Job's friends explaining why Job is suffering, followed by Job's response. And that's kind of what you see through the majority of the book. And to sum up the 30 chapters of dialogue into a much shorter version, uh, they are basically, they're, they're quite harsh. Uh, they're, some of them are very long-winded and have several chapters that they go on and on, uh, kind of really pounding into Job. And they're very adamant to point out that the world is basically ordered a certain way. There are certain rules, there are certain things that happen, there are causes and effects, and that's just the way things are, and it cannot be changed. And there is justice, and a man reaps what he sows. That's kind of basically what they're going to say over and over again, Uh, through the book of Job at Job. So Job's friends answer to the question, why is Job suffering? Why is this happening to you? Is simply that he must have done something. He must have done something bad enough in order to deserve it. It's just the way it is. It's how God governs. And I just want to make a side note here for when you're dealing with people who are suffering. It's generally a bad approach to reach out to people who are in suffering and say, I'm sorry that you're suffering, but it's your fault. So they're not not the best of friends when it comes to dealing with Job's suffering. And even if it is their fault, if you're addressing somebody, it's typically not a very 
reassuring or friendly, or I would say even gracious approach in dealing with. And so just a word to the wise, uh, better to they were better off when they had just sat in silence with Job, I think, than the things that they end up speaking. And actually God condemns them when he finally speaks at the very end of the book. He condemns these three friends for the things that they've said and their approach in how they deal with Job. So we do need to note, though, when we talk about their, their kind of their philosophy that they're bringing to the table, that there is some truth to what the friends are saying, right? Uh, the world is governed by certain rules, and it is true that you reap what you sow. This is, this is something that uh, we're taught from very young, if you grew up in church especially. Uh, you reap what you sow, and the New Testament talks about it. Uh, Paul talks about it in Galatians. So it's, a, it's a principle. It is a, a part of of the world. It is a part of God's plan. And there's certainly some aspects of this where we can see really direct, yeah, it's really obvious, right? And, you know, if you're sleeping around, if you're having sex with, with multiple partners and you have just no care, throwing care to the wind, and then you contract an STD and then it leads to suffering, uh, you don't have a, really a leg to stand on, so to say, if you're, why am I suffering? Why is this happening to me? Well, there's a kind of a direct uh, correlation with the effect this is the effect of, of, of your lifestyle, your choices, your actions, and the sin that you have committed. So we do see that, and obviously we can kind of paint that into all different corners of what that looks like. But there is a certain truth to you reaping, reaping what we sow, but it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth of how the whole of all God's universe is governed. It's not how God necessarily works. He doesn't fit into this kind of small thing. And we know this, right? That... Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. It isn't always the case. And we know as the readers of the book that it's not the case with Job. It's not the case with Job. We read it at the very beginning in the introduction, but actually later on in Job 1, verse 8, Job 1, verse 8, God himself re-emphasizes the introduction by saying it himself about Job. So in Job 1, 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, this is in their dialogue, have you considered my servant Job? So he notices him. He's like, this is somebody that has his eye. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And this is actually Job's argument throughout their dialogue between him and the friends. He is insisting that he's in the right and we know that Job was a righteous man because God himself says so. Now, I want to be clear, righteous man, not a sinless man. Uh, we see a reference that he makes sacrifices for his children, so we know that he understands there's a, a need to be, for sin to be covered. Time-wise, this was probably around the time of Abraham, uh, and clearly God has, was uh, working here in this part of the world. This is not an Israelite, so we still see God's hand in the world another topic. Uh, so he wasn't sinless, but a righteous man who trusted in God even in the midst of his suffering. Even when he lost everything, he still remembered God and, rem and remained faithful to him, right? At least at the beginning. But amidst the suffering and the accusations of his friends, which I can only imagine how that would wear someone down, he begins to see himself a bit differently. He begins, he kind of... Uh, depending on who you ask, towards the kind of middle of the dialogue between him and the friends, 
uh, maybe around chapter 20 or so, uh, he really begins to blatantly accuse God of things. Amidst our suffering, it's easy to fall into this state of accusation against God. And that can become dangerous. You know, God, why are you doing this to me? We kind of shrink God down into this kind of very personal, very directed, this is all about you wanting to hurt me. Why now? Why this? You know, God, why won't you just fix this? Why aren't you changing this? Why are you against me? And here in the middle of the dialogue, Job begins to kind of to become irrelevant, irreverent, sorry, irreverent toward God, accusing God of wrongdoing. And toward the end of the book, we see a fourth figure appear, Elihu. That's how I'm going to pronounce his name. Uh, Elihu, and he's a younger man, so he's kind of been sitting through this. We don't really know the full story about him, but just that he was there the whole time, listening to this whole dialogue, but he didn't speak. Uh, he has just been listening. And finally, in Job 32 through 37, he speaks up. And personally, this is my, my thoughts on Elihu. If, if you want, are going to read through the book of Job later, um, we have to be careful in how we kind of interpret uh, the things that they say. And mostly, I would say that Elihu is a lot of the same thing as the friends. Uh, he's going to kind of just be pointing out again this like uh, order to the world, order to the universe. Uh, but he's going to take it a bit further, and he does say some truths. And he's not accused by God. Uh, so we do kind of have to read his writing or his words a bit different. Um, but he's going to call Job out, and he's going to point to Job's sin. And when we read his pointing to it, we can see clearly uh, the sin that Job is committing. Uh, and this is a sin that surfaced in Job through this suffering. In Job 33, uh, 8 through 12, 33, 8 through 12, and this is Elihu starts off, uh, but you have said in my hearing, I heard the very word. So he's saying, this is what you said, Job. I remember it. And in verse 9, and this is Job's words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin. Yet God, so here's the accusation, yet God has found fault in me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on, my path, on all my paths. But I tell you, and this is going back, so this is Elihu talking again. Uh, but I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Now Job is wrong in claiming innocence. In claiming innocence, he's, I am without sin, and he's claiming it at the expense of God's grace. To bring himself into an equal standing with God, that God would count him, first of all, worthy to be his enemy, that God does not look at any human. God does not look at any human as being his personal enemy. And further, he puts himself in a position of being greater than God, a greater judge, a greater having greater knowledge than God. He's basically saying, I know that I'm good. I know I'm without sin, but God sees me differently. He sees me as somebody who has sin. He sees me as somebody who's in the wrong, and God is wrong for thinking that. That is the accusation that Elihu is making, and that is what Job has done. And that's where he crosses into sin. Elihu goes on later in Job 34, verse 12. It is unthinkable, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. And he's kind of using that as an argument for his 
so you must have done something wrong. But of course we know that isn't the case, and yet Job didn't sin in the beginning, but now he has entered into sin, because it is, it's unthinkable that God would do anything wrong. He is the author of good. He is love. He is these things. It is we who misinterpret them or pervert our understanding of them, not God. So whatever the reason for Job's suffering, it cannot be, we cannot justify it, we cannot explain it at the bending or distorting of God's sovereignty, his justice, his goodness, or his perfect love. When faced with suffering, we cannot bend who God is to try and fit into our personal situation as Job is doing. But rather, we seek to see how our situation, God, here's my situation, here's the the place I'm in, how is this fitting in with your plan? How does this fit in with who you are? We have to go in that direction when we're pleading our case to God. And he pleads his case, and he's demanded of God. God has been silent thus far, all the way to the end of the book. And in Job 38, Job, or sorry, God answers Job in verse, or in chapter 38 through 40. God answers him. We'll just read a couple things here. Uh, in verse 1 through 3 of Job 38, this is God's initial uh, kind of response or his first uh, words as and he's coming in in a whirlwind or a storm, uh, depending on the translation. I like whirlwind better, it's like a tornado, uh, which is pretty extreme to think about God coming in. So definitely would alert you. Um, and he says, so in Job 38, 1 through 3, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. I cannot think of more frightening words to come out of a whirlwind and the mouth of God. And we can be sure that Job's attention. And we can be tempted here to feel like, Hey, this isn't fair. God's maybe being a bit harsh here in his reaction because we know that it was God who allowed for Satan to bring this suffering onto Job. God is sovereign. God is in control. So what's going on? Well, in the following chapters, God's going to continue and he goes through 50 or 60 questions that he is kind of demanding Job to answer and he's, he's making a point There are definitely rhetorical questions, but I'll read the first question, which sets the stage for all of the questions. The first question is, where were you? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Where were you when I began creation? Where were you? And there's all these questions that he's going to unfold, and there's questions about the weather, questions about the stars and the universe and how they move, so we have like this idea of how gravity works, we have... Uh, questions about the depths of the ocean, questions about specific animals and their migrations and how they, uh, to how, when does the uh, mountain goat uh, give birth? I mean, there's all these kind of like weird and intricate questions about creation and about the world that we live in. And if you read through these questions, if you read all the way through them, even today, there are still a lot of mysteries kind of wrapped up 
in these questions, things that we still don't fully understand today about the creation that we live in, things we don't understand or definitely don't understand fully yet. And in Job 40, 3 through 4, Job answers or kind of replies to God after he's just kind of laid into him with these questions. This is his first response. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? Yeah. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Just, he's done. God has silenced Job. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. Every aspect, every molecule, every atom of the entire universe, known and beyond. God is answering Job by reminding him that the answer to his question of his suffering is connected with every single thing in the universe. Everything is connected. How could God possibly explain it to him even if he did use the words to try? Because how could Job possibly understand? We barely understand the universe that we live and breathe in and how it works. If we can't fully grasp the things that are right around us, that we can taste and see and feel, how can we hope to understand how everything is connected, even suffering, in God's plan and purpose for this universe? Why did God create creatures, the creatures he chose to create? There's these two examples of a behemoth and... Oh, I forgot the other one. There's, anyway, there's one is like a, is kind of explained like this giant kind of land-dwelling creature. The other is this big sea-dwelling creature. There's all kinds of debate about what those might be or what they might represent. But his whole point in, in kind of using them is, is why did God create them? Because who are you to ask him why? <laughs> he did because he did. And we could ask that for anything. Why did God create hippos? Or why did God create mosquitoes? Or anything in between. Why? We weren't there. We weren't there at the foundations of creation. And so we don't know why. Why did God choose to allow sin and suffering to be in this world? Sin was in the garden. The devil tempted Adam and Eve, as we looked at last week, in the garden. The opportunity for sin was always there. Why did he choose to do it that way? I don't know. We don't know why God did it the way he did. And in his approach here, I want to be clear, God is not belittling Job's pain. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. In fact, I think there's a huge amount of love in the way that he's expressing himself. I think of my own son, uh, when my son is maybe hurts himself or is uh, and using it as an opportunity to be disobedient. He's only two and a half, so that happens a lot. Uh, we have a newborn baby, and sometimes he might react by, oh, I want to hit my sister because I'm in pain. Uh, and so I have to come in. I've got, I've got to come in like a whirlwind sometimes, but I want to come down to him. I want to be close to him. I want him to know that I see him, that I care, and that there's that he's heard. And we see that with God. God didn't. God's not indifferent. Did he owe Job anything? No, but he came down. He spoke to him. So he's not belittling Job's pain, but we also have to un- understand that God is like, In the scheme of the universe, Job is small. And it also means that his suffering is small. 
Job has become immediately and intimately and overtly aware of this fact. He says, I'm putting my hand on my mouth. My problem isn't as big as I thought it was. And it, not to say it isn't big, not to say that this wasn't a devastating thing. But when you're addressing God, there is a certain awe and wonder that has to be brought in when addressing God. In the example of Job, the gap between God's divinity and the individual or humanity is shown, I think, more profound maybe than anywhere else in the Word of God. That God does not compare to us. We are not His equals. We don't rub shoulders with Him. He is God. And yet He loves us. He is infinite, immeasurable, unquantifiable, uncountable, uncontainable, unbound, and without limit. And even in that, he comes down to Job and shows love for him by addressing him and coming close to him. Though he owes him no response, no reason for his purpose and his plans, he said, these are my plans. Who's trying to thwart my plans? I'm doing something here. The story of Job also does give us some insight into Job's suffering that can be used for a greater good. And as I've mentioned, we know, right, God is working all things out for our good. And that means all things, even our suffering. God has a purpose in our suffering, suffering in this world. He's working everything out in all creation from the very beginning to the very end. He's working everything out for the good of his people, for the good of his children. And we don't understand exactly how that works or how that's going to turn out. But we trust that he is working out his plan. But we do see also these other kind of smaller things that bring it down to Job's level that I'll share with you really quickly. Number one is God speaks to us through our suffering. In Job 36, uh, 15, this is Elihu, another, I think, good thing that he said. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. Suffering can often open things up in our, in us, in our own, in, to see in our, ourselves uh, that we didn't even know uh, were there. As we see, Job is aware of his sin. And suffering itself, suffering itself, that's the he, suffering itself can speak to us in our affliction. And it can reveal things of our nature that we didn't know, maybe didn't want to know but needed to, we needed to experience this to get that, to grow in that way. And so sin, or sorry, suffering can be used as a way to teach us things about ourselves, and only in those times can we grow in the way that God is planning for us to grow. And some deep-rooted sin in Job's heart has been kind of shaken loose and exposed. Number two would be suffering produces endurance. And James, of course, James, quite famous for suffering as well. Uh, he starts the book off with, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Uh, but he kind of ends the book talking about suffering again in James 5, verse 11. We see a reference to Job, actually. Uh, as you know, we count as blessed, so the blessed those who have persevered. And he's talking about those who have persevered, those who have endured suffering, those who have been through trials, who have, have gone through hardships, they're blessed. You have heard, he goes on, you have heard of Job's 
perseverance. That's Job's steadfastness, Job's kind of endurance to the end, Job's perseverance, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And I want to just point out that James is not referring to, because if you know the story, at the very end, Job gets all of his stuff back. He gets even doubled some of the stuff. It's uh, he ends up really blessed. That's not what James is talking about. He's not saying endure suffering and then God's going to give you lots of stuff. That's not what Job's talking about in God's uh, compassion and mercy and Job's perseverance. Job, this is the real gift that we see in Job's perseverance and God's compassion and mercy. It's Job never cursed God. He never cursed God. Did you catch that? Because if you read the beginning, that was the kind of thing that Satan is trying to get Job to do. Satan lost. Satan lost in all his troubles and suffering, even when he was angry at God, even when he was sinning by accusing God, he was never talking to anybody but God. He never stopped believing. He never turned his back on God. He never turned away from God. He never cursed God. And I believe that's because God kept him. God knew. God knew what would happen. He knew his plan. It would not be thwarted. God kept. God keeps us in our suffering through all the things that we're going to need to endure in this life. And we all have times of suffering. It's promised us, unfortunately. Life will not always be easy. We know that we have a God who keeps us till the end. That is the endurance, perseverance of Job. And number three, Suffering produces repentance, humbles us, brings us to a place of seeing God as God and us as his humble children, desperately in need of him, desperately in love with him, clinging to him tightly. This is Job's repentance in Job 42, verse 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. He gets it now. Things too wonderful for me to know. I wouldn't know if, even if you did tell me. It's too wonderful. It's too massive. It's too big for me to wrap my brain around. Verse 4. You said, listen now. And I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And this is one of my favorite verses in this. Verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I desire, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This means he humbled himself. Job's suffering has revealed sin in his heart, but it also led to his repentance. Before, he had heard of God. He believed, right? We saw that because of his reaction in the beginning. Right when things got hard, he said, I'm going to bless the Lord. I know I know God is sovereign. I don't understand it, but God's in control. God gives, God takes away. He believed in God. He had heard of God. He knew who God was, but now he's seen God with his own eyes. And I don't think that's referring to God coming to him in the whirlwind. It's not talking about the whirlwind. I saw a whirlwind and I heard voices. He's talking about, I saw him in his suffering. I saw God in my suffering. And when we get to these really dark, lonely, deep places that we see, especially with Job in in chapter 3, 
there's this closeness that we come to with God on the other side that it's hard to duplicate. There is no other way that you can know God in that way through suffering. And so he has heard of God, but now he's seeing God close. He gets it now. And Job's story, again, I said it ends well. He gets everything back, but that's not always the case. We we know people. We've heard stories. That's not everyone's experience with suffering. So I don't want to say that, I don't want to emphasize that that's that's just the way it is. You know, you might go through some suffering, but hey, hang in there. Uh, God's going to just double everything you have. That's not always the case. It's just not true. Sometimes we experience, people experience suffering to the very end of their days. I think of people who have dementia. Um, I I can't think of something more frightening than that. To not know who you are, not know the people that you love, and for the people that love you, to not be able to communicate with you. And that's a lot of good people, a lot of good Christian people have ended their life that way. What a horrible suffering to endure. It's not always the case that we get everything back. And I, I don't know why God has allowed suffering. I don't know why horrible things have happened to innocent people. I don't know why good people have suffered. I don't know why children can be affected with cancer. There's some horrible things in this world that I don't, I can't wrap my brain around. I don't understand. I don't get it. And I can sometimes just cry out to God. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't understand why this is happening. And we will never fully understand the answer to the question in this life. But this is not, this is no way, in no way means that God is somehow indifferent to our suffering. Quite the opposite. For whatever purpose God has allowed suffering to exist in this world, in this universe, he does not remain far off, but has come right into the midst of suffering. God sent Jesus Christ. He sent his only son to suffer and die so that no matter what we endure in this life, we have this promised peace that waits us in eternity. But more than that, we also have, we have a high priest, as it says in Hebrews, who knows. He gets it. He knows suffering. He knows what you're enduring. He knows what you've been through. He knows what you're going through now. And we may suffer in this life, but in the end we know it's, as Paul calls it, all light and momentary. To die is gain when we have Christ. We know it's waiting us. But even now today in our suffering, through Christ. If you're suffering today, we have a Lord, we have a Savior who has felt every pain and suffering that we can endure. He knows physical pain. He knows emotional anguish. He knows sorrow. He knows loneliness. He knows what you are enduring. No one felt more lonely than Christ did on the cross when he said, my Father, why have you forsaken me? That was the ultimate aloneness. He knows. So the greatest comfort we have in suffering and in everything in this life is that in Christ, we are never alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for opening our eyes today to your greatness. Lord, you are 
mysterious and wonderful and powerful and mighty. Creator, God of all things, you reign forever. You have always been and will always be. We are but a blinking of an eye. And yet, you love us. And yet, you care for us so much that you would send your Son to die for us so that we may be set free from our own sin and promised and ushered into an eternity with you with love and grace forever. It's an unfathomable amount of love. I pray for those today who are in suffering or for those who maybe know people who are in suffering. Lord, that we who know people would be a comfort to them and not be accusers as Job's friends were. And for those who are in suffering today, that they would find peace in knowing that they are not alone, that you are with them, you are for them, and you understand their pain better than anyone else in their life can. You know. May this be a comfort for those who are suffering today. In Jesus' name, amen. So just really quick uh, before we close with a blessing, I just want to say that on this topic of suffering, it's a very deep topic we didn't have time to get into completely. And if you are struggling with that concept and wondering, I don't understand why suffering is, and I, I just I want to know more. I want to know more information. I want to recommend a book to you, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, The Problem of Pain. It's a very great book in dealing with this topic more in depth uh, than we did today. And so I would recommend that to you if that is something that you struggle with or want to know more about. It's a good book to read. Uh, and lastly, I just encourage you uh, to come and check it out next week uh, for another Human of the Bible. Uh, now I'll close with a blessing. If you'd like, you can stand where you are. Uh, this is a mix from Romans 8 and Romans 15, just to encourage us after today's message, talking about suffering. So let's pray together. Romans 8 and 15. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.